Well, good evening. I find it interesting in that uh, hymn, there is a discussion of the rapture of the church in that last verse, which is interesting because there are those who would challenge it on a scholarly level that dispensational theology, which includes the rapture of the church, did not come into existence until around the time of Darby, but given the date of the authorship of that hymn, you have dispensational rapture theology before Darby. Uh, Right there, I found that was interesting. And uh, that's a whole sidelight, just a bit of the history to add to the history behind the history. So uh, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to spend some time there. And as you do so, I... Andrew asked me before he got up to welcome us in this evening, he said, so are you going to finish Ruth tonight? I said, no way. We've enjoyed this book. Don't you like a book that you think you're almost done, you're reading the last page, you think it's almost the final page, and you turn the page and there's a whole new chapter? Uh, That's where we're at. Uh, We're going to have another chapter, Lord willing, next week that we're going to close out. And it is interesting, just a little bit of a preview, because usually when we're reading a book, we want a happy ending. You know, the prince and the princess right off into the sunset, to mix my metaphors here, uh, that you have everything going well, you have everything going the right way, and the book is going to close there. Ruth gives us two false starts after that, two almost ends, but not quite ends. One of those we're going to look at next week, and in fact, I would argue that for the Jewish believer specifically, but for also the Jew, the book of Ruth ends at that high point, at that climax of the most exciting things that could be discussed in the book of Ruth. And to you and I, it's a genealogy. But there is a lot of richness that we're going to study in it next week, Lord willing. And so I want to prepare your hearts for that as we also dig in to this evening as we begin in verse 12 of chapter 4 in the book of Ruth. Some of my fondest childhood memories were held at my grandparents' home. My mother worked for my grandparents. They owned a retirement home, and my mom was the manager at the retirement home. And so early in the morning when she would go to work, we would go to my grandparents' house was across the street. We would go to my grandparents' house. Uh, Well, you know, if you're retired and grandparents yourself, that you're a little slower getting around perhaps. Uh, Not everybody, but my grandparents were. They're a little slower getting around in the morning than the rest of us were. And so we'd arrive there about 7 o'clock. My grandparents were just getting up at 7 o'clock. And here we come. There was three of us and bursting into the doors and all set to enjoy the day with my grandparents. And the first thing is my grandma would come out. And uh, my grandfather took a while. I'll just say it was kind of the reverse in many homes, but... Uh, It was definitely that way in my grandparents' home, where my grandfather took about two hours to get ready for the day. And uh, he had this great haircut, perfectly styled hair, and evidently it took a while to get that way. So I remember coming in, Grandma was busy in the kitchen, and she would make her famous, at least famous to me, eggs, and she was preparing those, and she'd make the toast, a whole wheat toast, because we were 
there to enjoy their diet, not ours. And I'm sure that their food bill went through the roof when, when the three of us kids were there. And we sat down. My, I don't know that my parents ever knew that we sat down for a second breakfast every time we went to grandma's house. Here we are, we'd get there. We were fully satisfied when we left the house and we were hungry when we got to grandma's house. And so we enjoyed a whole nother breakfast there. I remember distinctly the pleasant smell that filled the air in my grandparents' home. It was a little bit of a different kind of, you know, it had mixtures of the food smell and just the way that my, my grandma's perfume and so forth. And so it was just a different smell. I remember it distinctly. I remember every breakfast and I remember at the end of every breakfast, my grandparents would sit down for their devotions together. And of course, we three kids sat there with them. Those were moments of spiritual formation for me. Important spiritual formation. The hustle and bustle of the day melted away. And I remember even as a teenager where I was doing a lot more work at the retirement home and uh, mowing lawns and taking care of maintenance issues over there, I remember still going to grandma and grandpa's or granddad's house for my second breakfast and time and the word of God together with them. The hustle and bustle of the day would melt away as we'd sit around their little breakfast nook together. And I learned more about God in those few moments than I can recall learning at any other time than Bible college. And we reflect on the impact of a grandparent's faith as we look into the last portion of the book of Ruth. What a joy for us it is this evening as we begin in verse 12 where the scripture says this. This is in the middle of some context that we ended last week and we looked at verse 12. We've already mined from this verse a little bit. We're going to mine again tonight and again in a week, Lord willing, from verse 12. And it says this, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let us ask the Lord's blessing as we spend time in his word this evening. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of grandparents. Not all of us have experienced those moments as the ones that I described, but we recognize still the impact of a grandparent's faith on their grandchild. When we think of Timothy's grandmother, who would teach and instruct and guide young Timothy in the things of the Word of God, so much so that the Apostle Paul would highlight it as well in his writings of the impact of the faith of a grandmother onto her grandchild. Lord, we praise you that we have the opportunity now to rally around this passage that is before us. We thank you that there's a lot of loose ends for us to tie up because it gives us more opportunity to spend in this impactful book and I pray that your name would be glorified as we do so this evening. Lord, I pray, whatever station in life we are in, whether we have grandchildren or not, that we would be people of influence to another generation. That we would learn from Naomi's example, albeit her negative example to begin with, but her positive example here as we come to the end of the book of Ruth. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. We ask your blessing upon our time in your word that each word that is spoken would be from you, from your spirit that would minister and salve our souls this evening, that your name would be glorified in that as well. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. 
We begin here in the first portion as we think of the Redeemer effect. We still have this title from uh, moving on from earlier. We are moving now into the effect of the Redeemer, and we begin in a similar fashion as we look into the house of Perez. Uh, This is an interesting study, and I said that we've mined from verse 12 already. That is true. We looked into it last week just briefly. We're going to mine from it today, and we're going to return to it again before we're concluding the book next week. And so recognizing that we're going to be back here, we're not going to cover every detail, but there is some interesting backstory to what takes place here. And we need to tie some of that together. First, we recognize as we look into the house of Perez that we're in the middle in verse 12 of the blessing of the people as they bless Boaz and pronounce a blessing upon Boaz because he has endeavored to become the kinsman redeemer. And so we're still in that conversation. The people of Bethlehem who have been surrounding, listening to the events that have unfolded before their eyes, are now pronouncing blessing upon Boaz. And notice what they say. They say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. In other words, they're saying, may you be fruitful, Boaz, and may you have many, many, many sons. That is the blessing, but it is an important blessing because it gives us a glimpse into Boaz's own family line. There's a lot about the line of Boaz that's very fascinating, and we're going to study it in detail next week, Lord willing. But we're going to catch a bit of it here. So keep your finger here in Ruth. Turn back to Genesis chapter 38. I'm not going to read through the entire chapter. I trust that if you are not familiar with this text, that you will come back. It is a challenging text. It's a difficult text because we come at it from a Western mind. We don't think the way that Tamar is going to think. We don't think the way that Judah is going to think. And we're certainly recognizing that while this is pre-law, before the law of Moses, that there is some very interesting things that unfold in this text. But it's important as we think of the blessing of the people that are give, that's given to Boaz in Ruth chapter 4, it's important that we recognize that what they're saying has the context of Genesis chapter 38. And again, it's a strange series of events for us in this chapter, but it reveals how appropriate this blessing was for Boaz. In Genesis chapter 38, I'm just going to summarize for you the chapter, and it will help you understand at least part of why the kinsman redeemer functioned the way that they did. Recognizing that this is before the law of Moses, this is before the Levitical law, so there is no law, there is no Israel. There is Israel, but that's Judah's father at this time, at this juncture, and Judah is one of the sons of Israel. And so we recognize that Israel's not a nation. It's a fledgling family at this point that's about to become a nation. And that's where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 38. In Genesis chapter 38, verse 2, Scripture says, There Judah, that is, he had been, let's move back up to verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Harah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. 
and she conceived again, and there's children that are born. Skip down to verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. There's a lot of interesting history just in that short little bit. But it's very important for us to understand that Judah is not necessarily a good guy at this point. We recognize, we, we typically think of Judah as a really good individual, but I want to remind you that in chapter 37, Judah was the one who argued for the sale of his brother instead of killing him. So he's probably not an upstanding citizen. I'm just saying that. As we dig into Judah's life, we recognize that while he is the head of a, one of the tribes of Israel, and an important tribe of Israel, and indeed when we move on through the book of Genesis, we'll recognize, we're going to look into this next week, we recognize that the scepter, the right to rule, will be through the line of Judah. So there is an important distinction of this individual, but this individual is starting out pretty rocky. He's, rather than killing his brother Joseph, he's going to sell him to the Ishmaelites. And he talks the rest of his brothers into doing that. And then in the next chapter, he has turned aside to an Adulamite, and a child is born, and that is from a Canaanite. So there is some challenges. Again, this is pre-law. This is before the Mosaic law. But we recognize that there's some challenges here with Judah already. One of the challenges is his sons are wicked. And that gives us some really detailed, in-depth description of their sins in the coming verses. Ur would go on to marry Tamar, but would not have a child by Tamar, so therefore no heir to the line of Judah because Tamar would then go to the next son in order to raise up an heir. And if you read through the context, you'll understand why I'm skipping over that context for our purposes this evening. Uh, But it is an important context. And then uh, there's another son, but that son is very young. And so uh, there is a lot that is going on in this chapter. And Tamar is trying to be righteous, actually, trying to raise up an heir of the line of Judah, but Judah's not having it. In, ch- in this chapter, Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, she's, by the time we move into the middle portion of the chapter, she's a widow, not once, but twice, because the Lord kills both of the two older siblings, sons. Timnah is going to come onto the scene, but he's young, and Judah's afraid for his life as well. And so Judah does not allow there to be a marriage between Tamar and Timnah to raise up an heir in the line of Judah, which is a struggle because if Tamar doesn't have a son, the line of Judah at the very fledgling state of the nation of Israel dies. It's gone. That's a significant problem because it would be of the line of Judah that Jesus would come. It'd be the line of Judah that would rule over the people of Israel through David, through Solomon, and will rule again in the millennial kingdom. So we see early on sin has caused a massive mess in Judah's family line. Tamar eventually, through Uh, some interesting means of what we would deem as immorality, she winds up being pregnant by Judah and has twins. 
the, although Judah would later confess, because he's quick to condemn her, but in his quick condemnation of her, she produces his signet ring. Uh, by the way, quick little plug, if you go to the Oriental Institute, which I just found out the other day that they changed that name of that about a month ago. Uh, so if you go to the Oriental Institute, you can walk to the display of signet rings. We don't really understand the idea of signet rings other than kind of a Middle Ages kind of idea. But the signet ring would actually be worn typically on a necklace. We pulled off the necklace and run across, usually about that long, and run across the wax seal or the clay seal, leaving an emblem there that was unique and distinct to the person who carried it. So when Tamar presents the signet ring of Judah, no one on the planet has the same signet ring. It's an important distinction of who he is, and therefore it is a condemning statement. And we recognize that Tamar has actually acted innocently, and Judah has acted wickedly, which you see it in his sons. doesn't surprise us when we see it in his sons. We recognize then that she conceives, and there are two children, not one. They're twins, and one sticks his arm out, and the thread is tied to his wrist, The arm goes back in during childbirth, and Perez is born. And those details are given to us in the end of the chapter, chapter 38, verses 29 and 30. The scripture says, actually back up to verse 28, And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourselves. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We're going to dig into this more in, the, in next week, but we recognize that the comparison for Boaz to Perez is very appropriate here because Perez... or Boaz, rather, was the ancestor of Perez. So there's a familial line. He was also, Perez was also born to Tamar by a surrogate father who is Judah. Boaz is going to be a surrogate father to Obed. After the death of her husband, of Tamar's husband, uh, we have Judah rise to be the same kind of relationship as Boaz will be to Ruth. And three, so those are two reasons. Third, they had an unbroken line of male descents extending, uh, descendants rather, extending over several generations from Perez all the way down past David. And so all the way in, as we will see uh, next week at the very end of Ruth, going all the way into the New Testament, leading us to Christ. This is a very, very important family line in the Old Testament. And it is a very, very important family line to you and I. Because of this line, Christ would be born. So we recognize the house of Perez. We needed to discuss that, turn back to Ruth. We need to discuss that to understand what a kinsman redeemer does. We'll discuss the descendant elements of it next week in more detail, but we needed to understand that a kinsman redeemer is raising up a name 
for somebody else. But in this case, we recognize that Ruth is doing it for the line of Elimelech, but it's going to be Boaz's line, despite the fact that he is a kinsman redeemer, that is going to have significant importance to you and I. By the way, in sparing the life of Joseph, we recognize Judah is not a good guy, as I've already said. But we're going to dig into his family line, which includes Boaz, as we see the family unit of Elimelech and Boaz being the kinsman redeemer, a close family line to continue this line from Judah all the way to fulfill the promises of covenant promises of 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. Those are significant truths, even though sin existed in this line. But let's turn back to Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Isn't that fascinating? As we get to the wedding in the first part of verse 13, we have all this buildup. We have six weeks or so, six to eight weeks worth of history that three chapters, at least two and a half chapters, have been written on, and suddenly wedding, wedding nights, establishing a home, and having a child, nine months of anticipation beforehand, are all covered in 29 words. It seems like Samuel's like, okay, let's get done. (laughs) But actually, he has another focus in mind that we're going to look into, but we don't want to forego or forget this most important element, as Boaz and Ruth say, I do. All book long, we've longed to see this fairy tale ending, and we want to see the hero get the girl, right? And they get married, and they ride off into the sunset, and maybe some little Ruths and Boazes running around at the end if you want to flash back into it. That's kind of how we, we view the narrative unfolding for us. But in 29 words, two sentences, you have a wedding, a honeymoon, a home established, a marriage consummated, a baby conceived, nine months of anticipation, a healthy, healthy boy delivered, boom, boom, boom. All very quickly. But let's slow down for just a moment and take each line at a time, one at a time. We understand that the wedding would be a significant event. Consider the details of the wedding. The groom, as wealthy as Boaz was, would have been uh, ordained with a golden crown and his robes would have been lustrous robes of high quality. The robes would have been scented. And this is an important distinction and one that we should understand is what they were scented with. A groom would be scented with frankincense and myrrh. You heard that before? Isn't it fascinating that our groom was given frankincense and myrrh at his birth, a foretelling of his role as kinsman redeemer, but also his role as the husband, the bridegroom of the church. We see significant element there. And by the way, that was Boaz's future descendant of the same line. Christ is presented with those gifts from the wise men, gifts proper to give someone who had come to redeem the bride. 
We also have, in the development of an early church, or rather an early Jewish wedding, you would have Boaz coming to meet his bride halfway. So the Jewish ceremony actually doesn't take place. It's not like, hey, all, let's all meet at the church at such and such time. Uh, that's how we do our weddings. But in a Jewish wedding, when the bridegroom would go and prepare a place for his bride, and when the place had been prepared, he would then send ahead and tell her, meet me in the middle, which also points to a dramatic work that Christ will do for his church, the bride. When, if you remember John chapter 14, Christ says, I go away to prepare a place for you. Why? That you may come where I am. The intention being that when Christ comes back for his bride, he will meet her in the clouds. And there we will be, there we will uh, see the marriage supper of the Lamb and the consummation of what we have been designed for in the church age. Tremendous theology that impacts New Testaments, but is lived out in the Old Testament. Christ is that one who will meet the church in the air. And so we recognize the beauty of the wedding. It's not, Samuel is not glossing over these details. He's got something else he wants to tell us, which is what we're getting to in a moment. So it's not as if Samuel doesn't want us to understand them. Samuel is just simply saying, these events happened, and oh yeah, by the way, let me talk, you, talk to you about Naomi again. That's where he's going. And so as he does so, he's helping us understand the importance of what the kinsman redeemer is doing. And so he doesn't focus so much on the wedding or the consummation or even the conception or the baby too much. But let us spend a little bit of time on both the conception and the baby. Before we move past uh, the wedding, we recognize that there is the conception. And notice what the scripture says. This is an important truth for all of us as we think of the, the baby boy that is to be born. Now, the scripture says this in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Did you catch who gave conception? What a significant truth. It was the Lord who was at work in this. In quick order, the narrative moves from the wedding to the Lord giving conception of the child to Ruth to the birth of a son. Very, very quickly, all three of these come together. The psalmist, who is not many generations removed, of the same line, writes this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Psalm 139. David understood what had taken place in the verse that we just read. It was the Lord who gave Ruth conception. That was the Lord's work. And has not changed. That's why we have recognizing the significant human value from conception in a child. It doesn't matter the location in or out of the womb. The child is a gift from God. 
And we praise God for that conception. And that is what we see here. It wasn't that a baby was born, it was that God gave conception, and that was a point of significance to Samuel. That was the point he drew out. He drew out that it was the Lord who did this work, and then she bore a son. And the emphasis is on the son. Uh, She had already born a child, but the emphasis is on the son. The truth that was instilled in Psalm 139 uh, from David is of this very line. He's, of, he's one of the descendants who had come from Obed. That was his grandfather. And so he had reason to celebrate. How many times do we see sin and death and obstacles emerge from the line of Judah, of the line of Boaz, of the line of Obed, of Jesse, and of David? By the way, it doesn't stop with David. It's not that the sin stops. We go down in the line and we see Satan trying to destroy this line through the sin of the inhabitants of this line over and over and over and over again. And yet God would preserve this line for his purposes. And David says that God is the one who gave conception. And it's here that the biblical narrative then takes a turn. Because our years of fairy tales have conditioned us to view events differently than Samuel writes them in the book of Ruth. We might picture a sunset scene, as I said, with Boaz and Ruth going off into the sunset. And as I said a moment ago, maybe some kids running around, Obed certainly being one of them, and they disappear from the scene. Curtains close book over. But instead, the biblical narrative turns a corner here. And Ruth and Boaz effectively fade into the background from the biblical narrative. Boaz will only show up again as a name and a genealogy. Ruth will only show up as the boy's mother, but really only by name. And so only by reference, not even by name. And so there is a significant turn because wasn't Boaz the hero? He is in part. And wasn't Ruth the princess in distress, the damsel in distress? Suddenly the focus turns to Naomi. And the largest portion of time is spent on the life of Naomi as the book comes to a close. It would, by the way, as we think of Obed, and uh, let's skip ahead just a little bit as we skip down into verse 17. The scripture says, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. That is a unique thing. We're not going to really dig into verse 17 too much. We're going to save that a little bit for next week. But that is a unique thing. The neighborhood women didn't typically name children. So what is it that happened? Perhaps they named him Obed and Boaz and Ruth affirmed that. We don't know. That's what the text says. And it is a bit unique and distinct. Uh, the, The narrative, the text doesn't give us an understanding of what is the case. Other than the focus of the narrative turns back to where the book started with Naomi. 
The book starts with Naomi, as she's brought back from the background where she's been over the last chapter and brought up to the foreground. Go back to chapter 1. Back to chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2, we find out the names of his sons, and we also find out that Naomi is his wife. As we move into the last point, we're going to spend longer here this evening. We recognize that the women back in chapter 4 are going to bless Naomi. But I wanted us to go back because Samuel ends where he began. The focus on one woman, Naomi. The women of the village in chapter 4 began to extol the works of God. Notice, turn back to chapter 4, notice verses 14 and 15. The scripture says, And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Did you catch that? It was not only Ruth that received the Redeemer. It was Naomi who received the Redeemer. Continue on. And may his name, that is the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This is... An amazing statement as the women bless Naomi and extol the goodness of God to Naomi. They observe that because of Ruth and her grandson, that is Naomi's grandson, Obed, that Naomi is now surrounded by the care and protection and love. And this grandbaby is restoring her life and giving her energy and joy in Naomi's old age. And you grandparents, I'm not there yet, but you grandparents, you know this, right? A little grandchild comes and there's renewed vigor, there's renewed life, even though it may be fleeting, <laughs> there's renewed vigor and life there. Not only do we observe a wedding consummated or wedding ceremony consummated, but we have a widowed grandmother invigorated. What an incredible reversal. The book has opened with sorrow and ended with satisfaction. It opened with Elimelech's sin and ends with Boaz's redemption of Naomi. Naomi had been taken by her husband with her two sons to Moab. It was an act of disobedience on the part of Elimelech. We've already studied that. We know that. Elimelech dies along with his two grown sons, and Naomi found herself traveling back to Bethlehem with little hope of physically surviving. She would be a gleaner the rest of her life, much less ever finding happiness. She would just exist. What's more... There's no heir to her husband's estate. Everything she owned in Bethlehem would go out to the highest bidder. She will spend the rest of her life alongside her daughter-in-law foraging for a living. She even changed her name to Myra, remember? As we've highlighted that throughout our study. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitterness. 
Call me bitterness. And she assumed that God had abandoned her as well as Ruth. Now look into verse 16 of chapter 4. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Verse 16, she's the grandmother of an heir in the home of her wealthy son-in-law who is her kinsman redeemer. Under whose wings she found refuge to use Boaz's own words that Ruth would utter back to Boaz. The word for nurse here in the text literally means guardian. She became the guardian of her grandchild. And notice the praises. The praise for the women echoes through the streets of Bethlehem as Naomi bounces her new grandson on her knees with renewed vigor. The Lord was the restorer of life and the nourisher of Naomi's old age. And the women of Bethlehem proclaim it. Isn't it a wonderful thing when God uses others to proclaim the goodness of God in our own life? And he uses others to proclaim it. That's what's happening. Naomi, you're back in Bethlehem and you said your name was bitterness. But look at what God has done for you. Look at the redemption that has been brought because of Boaz. Warren Wiersbe says this, commenting on Naomi's joy in the text and writing as a proud grandfather himself. He writes this. He says, Grandchildren are better than the fountain of youth. For we get young again when our grandchildren come to visit. That's what happened here in Naomi's life. And to summarize it, what really happened in Naomi's life is this. She's revealing, or she's reveling rather, in the grace of God. She's basking in the goodness of God, which is revealed in a roof over her head, food in her stomach, an heir to her late husband's property, a kinsman redeemer, and a grandbaby to receive all the love and affection she bottled up for so many years. And Naomi would change the course of Judah's line. Now, I'm sure Ruth and Boaz had a significant portion of it as well. But consider what Ruth could not do, at least at this point. Where did Ruth learn the law? Remember, she was a Moabite. She didn't grow up in Jewish customs and traditions. She didn't know the law, but she has certainly followed after the things of the law as she had been learning them, likely from Naomi. And now Boaz, certainly as well. But as we draw to a conclusion, I want us to recognize that Naomi could offer her grandson something that Ruth could not. As a new convert to Judaism, Ruth knew nothing of Jewish customs and traditions in the home. Ruth had so much to learn of the law of Moses and of the history of God's people, she barely had time to learn herself before Obed would begin to ask those difficult questions. So who answered them? Boaz, perhaps. But on the knee that he had bounced on, 
Obed could ask those questions. I bring that up because I remember some of the deepest theological questions that I asked as a child. I asked to my own grandmother. My grandfather, he was the pastor, but I asked my grandma. I wanted to know what she thought because she was gentle and patient with me and would walk me through in a gentle, patient way. And so my theology came out of my time spent with my grandma. Grandparents, whether you're grandma or grandpa or some variation of those titles, a grandparent has the ability to impact their grandchildren in so many ways. Let me give you just a few. You offer an emotional and perhaps physical safety net when parents fail or falter. You teach the plan of salvation. It was my grandma who told me. It was my mother who would eventually lead me to Christ, but it was my grandmother who poured the gospel into me. Timothy learned the gospel from his mother and his grandmother, 2 Timothy 1.5. You can be a unique witness of how God has been faithful to your family over the years. The memorial stones set on the banks of the Jordan River served as a storybook for grandparents to retell the story of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel, and they were established there in Joshua chapter 4. Can you imagine those being told to Obed? Naomi, likely, as we think of this benefactor or benefit of being a grandparent, Naomi likely had crossed past those stones on her way to Moab and back. If the stones were still standing, which I believe they were at that point, then she could tell her children and now her grandchildren of what had taken place there. You can be a wise counselor with years of experience and biblical knowledge to your grandchildren. You can be a non-judgmental counselor as your grandchildren share difficult questions and experiences with you. You don't have to know all the answers. You just have to know where to point them to the pages of Scripture. You can be a refuge and comfort for grandchildren who feel that there's no one else that they can confide in with trust and confidence other than mom and dad. And you can understand the significance of milestones in a child's life. Those significant moments that they don't get bogged down with the details as much as you are able to cheer your grandchildren on and along the Christian journey. Grandparents, you make a significant impact in the lives of your grandchildren. As we close out this portion of the book of Ruth, we recognize and we go back to this picture. You begin the book with Naomi and all of her possessions walking towards Moab. She has her two sons and her husband in tow, and they're going over to Moab. In the middle of the chapter, she's returning with just Ruth. She's telling those who surround them, don't call me Naomi, call me Myra, call me bitterness. Because I am bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. And then chapter 4, verse 16. When it seemed all was lost, when it seemed that nothing would be redeemed of Naomi, God was at work in establishing, developing, 
and furthering the line by which the Savior would come. And Naomi gets to bounce that child on her lap, who would be the grandfather to King David. Verse 16 says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Let's close this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the impact that a grandparent can make on a grandchild. Lord, we know we live in a broken system and there are plenty of stories and uh, real-life events of brokenness where grandparents have failed to meet this or grandchildren are not able to uh, be in the presence of grandparents for whatever reason. But Lord, I praise you that you have seen fit to use the family system to be that which furthers on the testimony of the gospel of grace, not because one is born in the family, but because the message is shared. And I praise you that there is something changed by the time we get to Boaz and Ruth. It's a different family line than Judah originally starts. It's of the same blood, but they're not behaving in the same manner. I praise you that that would then continue from Obed to Jesse to David. While each one of these men had their own serious, recorded and unrecorded sin issues, we praise you that you saw fit to preserve this line, and not just through David, but through Christ to fulfill your promises, as you said you would. To be a God who keeps his word to Moses, to Abraham, to David, to Solomon, to us today. Lord, we praise you that we have the opportunity to see through the narrative of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer at work. We praise you that in every way, Boaz redeemed Naomi. And that he redeemed Ruth. And that a child would be born whose name was Obed. Lord, we thank you for the way the narrative has unfolded for us. And that we have one more week together to spend here as we see the way that you have used this family's line to bring us to David. May we take great joy as the original audience would have taken great joy in this genealogy. And may you be exalted, high and lifted up. May we worship you as we depart from here this evening. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this incredible book of Ruth and the way that it shows your mercy, your love, your grace, your compassion, and your loving kindness to us. May we understand better what a kinsman redeemer is and what he has done. And may we praise you all the more for our kinsman redeemer, who is Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.